What is going on, Sharp Football family? It is your resident Swami of Konami, Rich Rebar. It's been a while since you heard my voice on this podcast, but I am here because we've got a lot of NFL news. Free agency kicked off. The NFL draft is still just about a month out, and NFL is just ramping up. I am going to be joined today by Ryan McChrystal, our mock draft maven. Uh, Ryan, what is going on today? Not too much. Excited to talk NFL draft with you. Yeah, this is our first kind of podcast you and I have done together, too. So it's kind of fun that we get a chance to do this. Uh, you know, I reached out last week. You were doing or a couple weeks ago when you did your first one. You're doing it with Curtis already. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about some NFL draft, learn some things from you. And one of the things I always like to look at uh, from these mock drafts is kind of the process you guys go through in creating these mock drafts, uh, how you became to be such a good you know, mock drafter, uh, because it's the same thing, you know, I get it from fantasy. Like, how are you, you know, you're, you're doing some prediction analysis. I'm doing projections. Uh, you're probably doing the same thing. So you probably walk through a little bit of that, you know, with some other people uh, on the podcast, but I kind of want to get your influence on, we had free agency start, you know, last week in the NFL, how does once free agency kick off, how does that kind of force you to kind of calibrate your process of how you're mock, you know, putting out your mock drafts? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's there's sort of two answers to that based on like when free agency starts and based on the fact that like the time of year that it starts. Strictly speaking, in terms of the moves that happen, I think this is a good question to start with because I think at this time of year, fans have a tendency to really overreact to free agency in terms of its influence on the draft. You really got to understand like how it affects the draft. You got to put yourself in the shoes of a general manager. And like, unless you own like maybe the first, second, third pick in the draft, you don't know who's going to be on the board. So even though you have like a need there and you have a player, maybe even a couple of players that you really want to get in the draft to fill that need, you kind of have to assume that, well, he, he's, those guys might not be on the board and we don't want to be stuck with May, May 1st rolls around. We didn't address it in free agency. The draft didn't fall our way. And now we're stuck with like the bottom of the barrel scrap peeps trying to fill this need. So the way that GMs mostly approach free agency is like, let's fill all of our needs with at least someone that like, if we have to start them, fine, we can survive a year with it. And so like, I think a lot of, so to use an example from this year's draft, I know Chargers fans are upset with me right now because I still have them taking an offensive lineman. And because they re-signed Trey Pipkins, they sort of have this mindset of like, oh, well, all our starters are back. We don't need to address our offensive line. We've, we've got five offensive linemen. Well, they signed Trey Pipkins, the 26-year-old, to a three-year contract, $13 million guaranteed. It's really like a two-year contract. If you're really excited about your 26-year-old right tackle, you don't sign him that kind of contract. You give him like a five-year contract <laughs> with a decent amount of money. And so like, I really think that that was like, okay, we're picking 21st. We don't know who's going to be on the board, but we have to protect Justin Herbert the best we can. Let's just address this the best that we can in free agency and see what happens. So if the right player's on the board they're still going to take them. So I'm not going to let those types of signings affect me when, as I'm filling out a mock draft. Now, it sometimes it does. Like the flip side to that is the Cowboys signing or trading for Stephon Gilmore. They're very much a team that's like yeah. trying to win right now. Whoever they draft in that position, more than likely they're trying to add someone to come in right away. So they filled their cornerback need. I previously had them taking a cornerback. That's probably now not going to happen. They're probably going to draft someone that's more of like an impact player right away just because of the mindset of that team right now. So it, it can influence the mock draft a lot, but I would say it's it's a lot less than uh, a lot less than fans tend to think it does. 
Yeah, I, I love that answer. Uh, so when you're doing these early mock drafts, you know, you're on now mock draft 4.0. You're putting one of these out per week. And we're still five weeks out from the NFL draft. Kind of walk through just kind of your early process of doing these mock drafts and maybe not necessarily necessarily looking for the 100% accuracy right now and just kind of trying to walk through kind of some scenarios that lead you out to putting that final draft, that final test, right, versus some maybe some of the other guys like a Kuiper or a Jeremiah mm-hmm. versus some of those other the, the, the bigger audience guys. Yeah, the process is something definitely something that I've fine-tuned over the years. This will be my 20th year covering the draft and producing mock drafts. So I've definitely evolved over time. And basically, what is a, a big influence on how I've gotten to the point where I'm now is re, like looking back at past mock drafts and realizing that the stuff that we put out there in March is a hundred percent wrong. Like, you know, sometimes we'll get the number one pick right. Like we we know it's between two players, right? So 50-50 yeah. chance we're gonna get the number one pick right. But beyond that it's really, really hard. And so what I've started to try to do is come up with plausible scenarios and sort of play them out and maybe tweak the scenario a little bit from week to week so that I've gone through the process of putting together a mock draft based on different things that could realistically happen. I'm not just throwing random stuff out there. I'm taking like a a real rumor that's out there and sort of like playing through the scenario. So for example, in my previous mock draft, I had the Texans passing on a quarterback at number two. And that's a real rumor that's out there. And it actually might be starting to sound more realistic now that um, just yesterday, Todd McShay reported that he has a source that uh, said that the Panthers probably want Bryce Young number one overall. And we know through some other reporting from guys out of Houston that the Texans are not so excited about CJ Stroud because he shares an agent with Sean Watson. So the possibility mm-hmm. of them taking a court, not passing on a quarterback is starting to sound more realistic. And I kind of already worked through that scenario in a previous mock draft. Now, is that the most likely scenario to play out? No, but it's realistic. And so I wanted to go through the whole process of coming up with a mock draft. So if later on we find out at some point, yes, the Panthers are all in on Bryce Young and the Texans are all out on CJ Stroud. Now I've already kind of got a bunch of ideas in my head of like, okay, how are the dominoes going to fall? And I'm prepared for that. Same thing in this week's mock draft. I use that same logic to to push Jalen Carter much further down the board than he is in mock drafts. I mean, we'll talk about him in a little bit, I think, but I have him falling all the way to 27 to the Bills. And that, again, that's probably not the most likely scenario for him. But if, you know, over the next couple of weeks, a lot of teams do not have a finalized opinion on him yet. They're still digging and trying to learn more about him through interviews, through talking to past coaches and friends and family and whatnot. It's possible sort of his negative offseason continues to steamroll. And as we get closer to the draft, we realize actually he is going to fall that far. I feel like I'm in a better position to have like a a really good mock draft to put out there close to the draft if I've already worked through those scenarios. So that's kind of how I handle these early mock drafts, knowing that we're not going to get it right anyway. So let's sort of like prepare for the final process. And if I've already worked through it, I'm probably going to have a better mock draft in late April when you really want the mock draft to be accurate. Yeah, I love that too. Uh, I'll hit you with one more to process, uh, you know, question here before we kind of jump into everything that's kind of happened since you last did this show. Uh, how much are you looking to not just, you talk about going through some of the scenarios that might happen, but how much are you kind of just mocking and laying out your big board and how much do you really even factor in team need at all to the NFL draft? That's, it's tricky. I, so I go through and evaluate all the prospects myself so that I have, a feel for the prospects. I try my best to leave 
my to push aside my personal opinion and try more to get a mm-hmm. focus on the feel I have for the type of player that is and how that fits the team needs because that drives the draft a lot, maybe even more so than fans realize. Sort of like the reverse of the free agency conversation that we just had, and both team needs and really even more so general manager tendencies like these GMs all have specific types of players that they want coaches depending on their say over the draft that's obviously a big influence too obviously more veteran coaches are going to have more influence over that so really understanding what are these players like core strengths and weaknesses and how do they fit the trends of the different GMs and coaches and you know to use another example that we already mentioned Jalen Carter like we're starting to see his name pop up with the lions a lot in mock drafts and i find that to be completely implausible because of brad holmes their gm's tendencies he never shuts up about intangibles you put a microphone in front of him and the first word about out of his mouth is intangibles that's all he talks about and look at his track record already like panay sewell aiden hutchinson like high character guys great work ethic guys he talks about it all the time for him to follow up those two drafts and the way that he's talked in his first two years to draft Jalen Carter, the biggest red flag in his whole first round from an intangible standpoint, right. completely implausible to me. So understanding not just team needs, but also tendencies, like the types of players and the types of people that the different organizations want to bring in is really important. Yeah, I love that too. Uh, so last time you did this show, you, you did it after mock draft 1.0. And at that time, the Chicago Bears had the number one pick. Uh, they no longer have the number one pick anymore, obviously trading that, you know, to the Carolina Panthers who've had enough of chasing, you know, the quarterbacks, right? We know that the Panthers are taking a quarterback. There's been some kind of like smoke afterwards, like they could trade back down. Like, come on. We know that that's not probably <laughs> happening, uh, but they've had enough between the Darnolds, uh, the, the Baker Mayfields, the Teddy Bridgewaters. They're finally going to sink in and draft one of these guys. Uh, so you have currently CJ Stroud as the number one pick. Uh, we've gotten some kind of, you know, signal the last couple of days. The Panthers are in love with Bryce Young. Do you believe that that is more smoke that maybe a team does want Bryce Young and say like, well, they've now got to come take that pick. Or if the Texans wanted Bryce Young, that they have to come swap with that pick. Or do you genuinely buy that the Panthers are sold on Bryce Young being the QB one? I'm not necessarily sure I'm sold on him him being QB one for them, but it's certainly plausible. I, I would say it's not likely to be smoke. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If you look at the history of teams who've owned the number one pick, it's very, very rare that they purposely put out smoke screens out there. It's pretty much John Dorsey is the only GM who's ever <laughs> decided to do that. And it's just, honestly, it's just weird. Like you own the number one pick, like if it leaks out, yeah, who who cares, right? <laughs> like there's yeah. really nothing to be gained. It's it's really rare. We usually do know who the number one pick is going to be pretty early on in the process. Um, and so maybe this is the point where it starts to leak out more and more and Young becomes solidified there. I don't think that there's enough around it that I'm really confident in that. It could still just be, you know, someone taking an educated guess, or maybe someone genuinely knows that there is one or two people in the building pounding the table for Bryce Young. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that the guy with the ultimate final say is on board with Bryce Young. So it could be that there are certain voices in the building really pushing for that and a decision has yet to be made. That's very realistic. I have them going Stroud. I mean, I released the mock draft before, as I mentioned, McShay mentioned that Stroud rumor. I, I released the mock draft before that. I'm certainly going to consider changing it for the next one. But the reason I went with Stroud is that he seems to fit a little. He's a better fit for Frank Reich and what he's worked with in the past. He has 
absolutely exclusively worked with big pocket passers. I mean, you could sort of say Carson Wentz to a degree. I mean, he obviously had a little bit more mobility to his game, but you know, still ultimately the core of his game was being a big pocket passer. He also worked with Philip Rivers for a long time, Peyton Manning. Like that's the type of quarterback that he's had. And so for him to then work with Bryce Young, you're asking him to work with a very different type of quarterback. You really got to sort of change the offense if you're going to have a smaller, more mobile quarterback that back there. Whereas Stroud, although he also is mobile, he's more mobile in the Carson Wentz way. Whereas like ultimately you want him in the pocket throwing the ball, but you know, the running ability is just sort of like an added bonus that you can, uh, it's really more of like a fallback plan for that type of quarterback as opposed to the core of the game. Whereas with Bryce Young, especially given his size, you you really do have to change the offense to fit that player. So that's that's why I'm still kind of leaning Stroud. It seems to be a better fit. I personally think Stroud is a little bit above Young. I mean, he has a bigger arm, he's bigger physically, and he's more accurate. So like for me personally, I don't I don't really know why this is such a heated debate. I think Young is good, but when you have a quarterback who's above the other one in all three of those categories, it seems relatively easy choice to me. But, you know, I mean, Young is also a fantastic decision maker. That's what he brings to the table. So, yeah, I mean, maybe they go with Young, but I'm still going to lean with Stroud, I think, unless this now starts to snowball. If we have more people confirming the report that McShay put out there, then we got to start taking it seriously. Yeah, especially with the offensive line Carolina already has in place, which is really solid. Like you think that that Stroud would be a fit to kind of mm-hmm. adapt to you know Frank Reich's system a lot earlier than you know Bryce Young, who invites a lot of pressure because of you know how he has to maneuver in the pocket. Uh, you know, he was uh, in this draft class in particular, he was number one uh, or number you know last number fifteen of the QBs that were invited to the combine in pressures that were credited to the quarterback, and he's just comfortable, right? Like he's comfortable having you know, defenders, you know, pressure him. He's comfortable moving out of the pocket. He's got to manipulate because of his size. He has to manipulate throwing lanes. And he's just, that's his strength. And that's the strength of his game. With Carolina's offensive line, they they don't really have to worry about that. You know, so you can get get that guy that's just a big drop back passer. Uh, It's going to be interesting to see how much steam that picks up. We've seen Josh McCown literally has a video fawning all over, you know, (laughs) CJ Stroud too. Like there's a video of him like literally just – having having just a a great triple x experience uh watching <laughs> breaking down cj stroud film um and especially the way cj stroud i think closed uh his career at ohio state in the, against that georgia defense making plays out of structure which was like the biggest question going up into that point of him becoming the nfl draft mm-hmm. and how successful he was uh against like one of the best defenses in the in the country and being able to alleviate some of those concerns i think was a huge elevation point for stroud you know pushing to be the number one pick uh, if he came out, which he obviously was going. Yeah, to. absolutely. That's um, that's not insignificant at all for him to have had yes. arguably the best game of his career and the final game of his career against the best defense he faced in his career. You can't ignore that. That's definitely a factor that teams, you know, you can't even if you try to push it out of your mind, it's hard to shake that final impression given the circumstances. Yeah. And I'm huge on that type of stuff. And I definitely believe it influences, you know, NFL decision makers of how players play in big time moments. Right. Like this is, you know, that it was a big inflection point for Deshaun Watson, right? Because if people had questions about his arm and you, all you had to do is look at the two previous years before Deshaun Watson came out, he threw for 400 yards against Alabama, both championship games. Like there was no like question that this guy, that this guy could play football. Um, and I think that's what we have with Stroud, you know, closing out his career uh, against Georgia. You already kind of hit on the Houston situation. Like if Stroud were to go one or if Young were to go one, does that, 
automatically mean a quarterback goes number two to Houston. Uh, you've talked about kind of that. You break it down in your, you know, the on the website too about the, you know, the agent that CJ Stroud carries. It's not necessarily a, a lock that Houston goes, you know, QB. And and Houston really like, do we know like what the direction is? Like this is still like a very rudderless plan. I don't really see the yeah. direction of what Houston is really trying to take this 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 organization, what they're really trying to build. Uh, so just kind of touch on that real quick again uh, on our on our way out here of the of the QB one talk. Yeah, it's tricky. We really don't know. Obviously, them avoiding C.J. Stroud purely because of the agent, that's like kind of both understandable and really weird at the same time, right? Like, can you really avoid an agent, especially a big-time agent that has a lot of big-name clients? That's just bad business. You're going to want to deal with David Mulgetta at some point, given the roster of players that he has. Um, but egos get in the way all the time of good decisions. So it's certainly plausible that they would avoid him but yeah you're right we also don't really know a whole lot i mean they really surprised us last year taking Derek stingley i mean that was not something that we had in our mock drafts at any point up until about a week before and then suddenly it was oh they're they're all locked like it leaked out too which is also a little bit surprising but it we suddenly knew before the draft they're going to go stingley and they're going to do them at three that was something that we thought i forget which number it was but they owned two picks last year like number 13 or something like that those other mm -hmm. ones and so like when the stingley news first started leaking out people were thinking well yeah that makes sense maybe he, he could fall to them but no they they shocked us and took him at number three so yeah they are definitely marching to the beat of their own drum to a certain extent so yeah they could completely shock us and you know it, it could be something that we're not even discussing right now that they pull out of nowhere yeah, I mean, the Texans are really weird. I, I generally just have no clue, like, what the direction of the organization is right now. Like, I and, and it really is for the last three years, right? How they've approached free agency, how they've approached the draft. They're really hard to get a gauge on because it, it looked like a scorched earth situation, right? And, but they haven't really handled it like that. And it's it's very yeah. interesting. Well, uh, and they still have very – and they've got and they've got needs everywhere, right? Like, this is a, a – mm -hmm. they're devoid of talent nearly everywhere outside of, like, two positions. Yeah, and the other thing that we should mention too is because of the Deshaun Watson trade, obviously they have two picks in this year's draft, but they also have two picks in next year's first round. Mm -hmm. And so that's something to keep in mind too, is that if they don't, that makes it a lot easier to pass on a quarterback basically because they know they already have the ammunition next year that even if they don't end up in the top five, they can trade up into the top five. So that's something to think about too, right? Like they could make that move in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, Jalen Carter, you brought up his name a couple times during the podcast. Uh, we'll touch on him a little bit too here. Obviously, he's been a hot button topic, you know, arguably the number one defender in this class. I believe Kuiper still has him as his number one, you know, defensive rated player in the draft. Obviously, at the combine, he has the arrest warrant. He has to leave the combine. Uh, then he holds his pro day. He comes in heavier. He can't finish the workout. Uh, he wasn't going to do any testing he was only going to do individual drills he couldn't finish that he had cramps and was breathing heavily had to kind of pull out of there so some teams you know grain of salt that like but our team's going to knock him down what do you think this does for his draft stock and, and when you look back at it in some previous classes when we've had some guys fall like you know i hate to bring up larry tunsil but you know that happened like Lyle Collins, like these guys have ended up being really value picks. Like one, do you think that Jalen Carter falls to the degree of those guys? And two, do you think he just ends up still being uh, a tremendous value for whoever lands him? Yeah. So it's interesting that you brought up Tunsil. I've seen that mentioned a lot as far as like a guy who slid a little bit and then obviously he did perfectly fine. And he also didn't even really slide that far. Like 
at most maybe 10 picks, I think. What did he go, like 15th overall or something like that when Miami finally grabbed him? Yeah. And so, like, that's sort of being talked, thrown out there as, like, sort of like a baseline. Well, like, even if he falls, like, look, he's not going to fall further than Tunsil. And I kind of disagree with that logic a little bit because with Tunsil, that came out of nowhere. Like, Laramie Tunsil was viewed as a stud left tackle prospect, no question marks, superstar. And then out of nowhere, that video drops and everyone was just caught off guard Mm -hmm. scrambling. This is so much different because the obviously the news of him being arrested when we found out about the arrest warrant when he was at the combine that came out of nowhere. That was not something that we were expecting to happen. But the reports about him having questions about his work ethic and his attitude that was already out there even before the car crash ever happened. So you've got a player who obviously super talented, totally worthy of all the praise that he was getting as far as being like a potential top five talent in this class. But we already knew there were issues and questions around him. And then he got arrested (laughs) and then he showed up overweight and couldn't finish his drills at his, at his pro day. So you got a player who already has issues. Who's now added two more big question marks very publicly that everyone has seen And that's now making all the teams go back and just dig so much deeper into those rumors. Whereas before, if it were just the rumors, obviously teams, they make phone calls. They talk to as many people as they can, but to different degrees. Some teams are going to dig a little bit further into that and be a little bit more skeptical about that than others. Like I mentioned, just with the Lions too. Like that's an organization that cares deeply about that. They were going to dig deep into Carter regardless of what he did this offseason. Other teams... Maybe not so much. They may not have been as concerned as that about that. But basically, what Carter has done this offseason, they've, they've now forced everyone's hand. Like you have to dig as deep, talk to as many people as you can, interview him multiple times if you're thinking about taking him. And so I think we're at the point now, even just purely based off of what happened at the pro day, that's knocked him off of certain teams' board. I would imagine. I don't know that for certain, but. Purely based on the past rumors, even if you just set it, let's set aside the whole car accident because you can certainly write that off as, you know, any 22 year old can make a really horrible decision one night and get themselves into a bad situation. Even if you set that aside and just say he had some attitude issues in college and then he showed up overweight and couldn't finish his pro day workout, that alone is going to really scare some teams when we're talking about a top 10 pick because these GMs are humans with a job and if they get it wrong, they're going to lose their job. So, I mean, actually, this this kind of reminds me of there was a situation. I can't mention the specific people involved, but I I learned of a team leading up to the draft a few years ago who was in need of a quarterback, and the head coach and the offensive coordinator both wanted to draft a specific player. And I, under normal circumstances, almost certainly, I think the GM would have sided with them. But basically, leading up to the draft, they had a bunch of conversations. Ultimately, the GM was like, you know what? I'm not betting my career and your guys' career on this guy. We're we're going to yeah. pass. And the GM, he ended up being right. And the player ended up getting some people fired by the team that did draft him. And this GM and head coach and OC basically went unscathed and held on to their jobs. And, you know, to this day have relatively decent, uh, relatively decent reputations, which would have been absolutely destroyed simply by drafting a player who was super talented, but, a lot of off the field stuff had the potential to get away and ultimately did get in the way. And this is exact. This is the same situation. Like if you draft Jalen Carter, you're betting your career on it because all this off field stuff is very public and everybody knows it's a risk. So if you decide to roll the dice on him, you're saying I'm all in, 
and I'm betting my career on it. And there's, I, I think there's probably going to be someone in the first round willing to do that, but I don't know about top 10. That's, that's really dicey. Yeah. Like I want to get your opinion on one other guy. This is uh, not on a show sheet or anything, but I want to get your opinion. Cause you still have uh Will Anderson, you know, over Tyree Wilson and, you know, Will Anderson's one of these guys. It feels like he's getting the miles Garrett, uh, Nick Bosa treatment a little bit this year where his, he had such Uber production his first two years and he had a solid year last year for Alabama, but it didn't have like the, the Boku numbers that like he had the first two years. Um, and it feels like people are almost trying to talk themselves out of Will Anderson. Like, do you think that that's right? Or do you think he's still the premier defensive player like, to grab in this draft? I, I do. And I also love Tyree Wilson. Like, I don't think it's, compl- if, Tyree Wilson were to get drafted ahead of him. I don't think it's necessarily a case of people overthinking Will Anderson. I think it's just a case of two super talented players. And, you know, maybe you like the certain traits about one guy or the other, or maybe the interviews went better or, or whatnot. Like it's within the realm of possibility that through the process, one team could side with Wilson. Cause I, I love him as well, but with Anderson. Yeah. Like you can't overthink it. Like he showed up on campus as a true freshman in Alabama and was the best player on their defense as a true freshman. I mean, that alone is really saying yeah. something. And then he maintained it. Like, even if there was a little bit of ebbs and flows to his production, I mean, he still was clearly the best player on that defense this past year, surrounded by a ton of talented players, you know, really dominated the SEC all three years. Like you can't overthink it. Like, especially with a, a him, like, the, you know, there's, it's not like there's any kind of questions with him attitude wise, work ethic wise. Like I, I think, you know, Saban speaks glowingly of him. Like, you can't overthink it with a player like that. If, you know, through the interview process, the team sides with Wilson, that's plausible. But Anderson is also a really spectacular player. No, no, I love that. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen some people try to try to float out there. They're like, you know, what about the what about what happened last year versus the first two years? But yeah, still an excellent player. We decided to open things up this week where you guys could reach out to Ryan on Twitter and answer some questions. And we're going to do that right now. Uh, if I do botch anyone's Twitter handle or last name, uh, just know as someone with a last name that has been botched a bunch of times throughout the course of their life, uh, I do commiserate with you and I apologize in advance, but we're going to hit some of those questions that people kind of responded to on Twitter. Uh, the first one comes from Nick Bottiford. Uh, he would love to hear more about why you have Bijan Robinson mocked at pick 30 to the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, this is a sort of a tricky one that I'm definitely still, I'm definitely still thinking about it. I've had him there in most, maybe all of my mock drafts. Can't remember. I think if he's on the board, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's, I mean, I think Eagles fans are sort of coming around to it. It's becoming a more popular pick in mock drafts. I think the reason why people were skeptical of it, at least early on in the process, was it doesn't really feel like a Howie Roseman type of pick to take right. a running back in the first round. He's very analytic-minded guy. You know, he's not – and we think of those types of GMs as they're not going to take an off-ball linebacker too high or they're not going to take a running back too high or overspend on those positions. And there's a lot of truth to that, but – you have to adjust a little bit based on where your team is right now. And I think when you're an obvious Super Bowl contender to add a superstar to one of those positions, that suddenly becomes a lot easier to justify. And specifically with running backs, where when you're drafting someone like B. John Robinson, it's not like you're bringing him in and you're thinking, well, maybe he'll split carries the first year and then hopefully he's ready to go in year two. No, if you draft B. John Robinson, you're expecting him to be a top 10 running back in the entire league year one right out of the gate like running backs at the top tier they enter the league as fully formed nfl starters 
So the fact that you have to pay him a little bit more, I, I don't think that's a problem for teams. I, I think if you're a you know have a roster like the Eagles, I don't think having to pay a running back a little bit more is a really big issue. And it's not like we're talking about a huge amount of money. It's not like when the Cowboys took Ezekiel Elliott fourth overall, like to take. So Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was recently the 32nd pick in the draft, and his cap hit this upcoming season is going to be 19th among running backs. So you're going to be paying Bijan Robinson if you take him 30th overall. It's sort of like a mid-tier starter, but you're you're fully expecting him to be a top 10 running back and hoping that within a year or two develops into a you know top two or three running back because he's that type of talent. So I I definitely think they could justify it. Now, the signing of Rashad Penny, I'd be interested to hear if you have any thoughts on this too. Obviously, they've got a backfield that they could go into the year with Penny, Gainwell, and Scott. So, you know, maybe that maybe they're comfortable with that. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, this is this whole thing is an onion. This this whole B, the whole <laughs> B. John Robinson, right? Not even just to Eagles, to just the selection of B. John yeah. Robinson in general. In this particular case, I mean, I don't even think like we necessarily even have to get in the weeds of what the Eagles are. I don't even think he's going to be there at 30. Uh, you know, he's arguably the best running back prospect we've had since Saquon Barkley. Uh, and we've seen that when these Uber prospects tend to come out, they still get drafted like immensely highly. Now I'm not saying I really know where he's going to go. I just don't think he's going to be there at 30 uh, based on what we've seen from like guys like Saquon, Christian McCaffrey, uh, Leonard Fournette, like really the only guy, the NFL that like on paper looked like a bar none top, pure running back that they let fall was Jonathan Taylor. And that's because, mm-hmm. you know, there was some questions, you know, how involved the pass game can he be? Uh, but other than that, like they've still like shown, like when a guy like Bijan Robinson has been available, someone's going to get in that honeypot like real early. Uh, so I don't even think he's going to be there at 30. Then we can kind of get into the whole process of like, what do you believe the Eagles will do? Because they haven't really done a move like this. Like how he has least shown, like he understands like what grocery aisle to be in, in the NFL draft. You know, you look at his, not just his first round history, but his second round history too. Like they're taking wide receivers, they're taking defensive edge, they're taking, you know, quarterbacks. And I think that's like one of the big, like the, the economic question of the NFL and taking Bijan Robinson and why no team should really do it. Right. Like here's the thing to win in the NFL is you need players to con- that contribute more to you winning than they cost in money. Right. Like, and, and that primarily comes from how, right drafting these players on rookie contracts. So you are potentially getting value, like you said, on Bijan's rookie contract, if he is like that Uber running back and he's a top five to seven running back. And like you said, he's going to be at like RB 19 in terms of cost. But when you have guys like Jacoby Myers are making the equivalent money to top dollar running backs, which we can have an apples to apples comparison of this year, the Raiders signed Jacoby Myers and they had the franchise tag, Josh Jacobs, who led the NFL in rushing last year. And they're making the same money. So you're not still nearly getting out, maxing out the contractual leverage that you would get at like wide receiver, cornerback, or edge, because those players are never available in free agency, the good ones. So the only way to kind of get those guys are to draft them, trade for them, or give them a huge extension. Uh, So that's what makes taking a running back so high, even when they're as good as Bajan Robinson on paper, the opportunity cost is just so, so massive to get that kind of value. I don't think there's one roster I can look at right now that Bijan Robinson is not just like an F draft pick for like maybe the Cincinnati Bengals, like you can kind of talk yourself into because of how good they are offensively. But you look at the Eagles, like they have a running game that I believe inherently they understand this too, 
that is going to be really good no matter what running backs are there. Uh, because the offensive line, the scheme, and what Jalen Hurts provides, right? So, like, you can go, like, undervalued one-dimensional guys. Because Rashad Penny's a one-dimensional player. Like, he's a he's a really good running back in the field. He's not adding anything in the passing game at all. He's not a great uh, pass protector. But they know they could just have a guy come in and get carries. So, that I think they'll probably still add a running back in this draft, even if Bijan's not there at 30 because they understand they can get value on these guys and just kind of throw whoever they have in this system because it's that good. I do think Penny is a, is a good fit. I don't think he precludes them from taking a running back by no means, especially given his what they gave him salary-wise, uh, contractually, his injury history, all of that above. He's been awesome on his like small sample career against shotgun runs. He's averaging like seven yards per carry in his career with shotgun runs, uh, which is all you're going to get with the Eagles. It's just such a great landing spot for any running back. But uh, yeah, I think the more is like the economic factor, like taking a running back in this NFL, if it's not to me the dunk on say running backs don't matter, I definitely think good running backs do matter. I think we've seen that with Christian McCaffrey. I think Bijan Robinson is going to matter when he's on the field, but in terms of contractual leverage and being in like the right aisle uh, at the grocery store, I don't think any team has any business selecting him in the first round. And I think he's going to go way before 30. Yeah, no, I mean, you definitely could be right. And that, what you bring up about the Eagles offense, that could definitely be their thinking. Maybe we're having this conversation and they're laughing and they already know like, yeah, there's no way we need to spend that on a running back because our system is what makes these guys look good. Totally plausible. The one thing I would push back on a little bit is how you mentioned that there's a history of these types of runners going so much higher. But if you look at who made those decisions, like who drafted Ezekiel Elliott, Jerry Jones, <laughs> Christian McCaffrey, Dave Gettleman, Saquon Barkley, Dave Gettleman. For the most part, it's guys that we don't have a very high opinion of in terms of their uh, ability to make good decisions around the draft. And I think that over the last, even within like the last three or four years, we've seen teams do a much better job of hiring general managers. Like I have a relatively high opinion of almost every guy out there running a draft room. I think they're becoming much smarter. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. He could totally be gone before the 30th pick. I mean, and the reasons why I laid out him being option for the Eagles, you could also apply that to the Bills too. And, you know, he could be gone just a couple of picks earlier than that. You know, there's other teams that are kind of wild cards, like um, the, the Lions with an earlier, because they have two first round picks, they could take them as high as 16 overall with Washington. That certainly seems plausible. Like, of yeah. What about the Chargers? Yeah. That's certainly the, out there too. The Chargers are probably a team looking at like our offense is excellent. Obviously, you have the correlation to the Austin Eckler contract yeah. trade demands. Uh, yeah. You know, they might feel like it's like, hey, we're good enough to add him. Yeah, I mean, there, as you, there's certainly a bunch of teams out there. Yeah. He, maybe he's not on the board, but I do think that there are a lot of there are a lot smarter GMs across the board yeah. than there used to be. It's much harder to point to someone and be like that guy. That that's the fool in the room. I don't know that it's Are we at ECN go in the first round two years ago at what, yeah. 22? Yes. Yeah, someone by the <laughs> name of Urban Meyer, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, yeah he was also going to take Darius Tony. So it does. Yeah. But yeah, but it's we have, just a lot harder thing, to find. It's just a lot yeah. harder to find the guy who's obviously going to make a mistake. The, the sucker in the room, the, the rounders, mm -hmm. uh, Matt Damon, uh, you know, <laughs> quote, obviously. Uh, yeah. But it is going to be interesting. I, I still would bet on him being gone by 30. I think that I would still bet on it, yep. but um, it's going to be interesting to see where he does go and how we evaluate that pick, you know, uh, especially because you look at, I mean, what, since 2010, we've had 19 first round running backs and like 
really none of those teams have been good outside of where the running back was a contributor, a core contributor to the team outside of what Todd Gurley, uh, you know, Sony, Michelle, the Patriots are good, but how much of that was Sony, Michelle, yeah. the chiefs obviously took CH. He wasn't even active for the Super Bowl <laughs> last year. Uh, and most of these teams have gotten out from these players, you know, Fournette, CMC. Um, it's really hard. It's really hard when you get into the weeds to justify the pick, but I have a feeling he's going to be gone before 30. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens, uh, where he goes and how he goes. But, man, the contractual leverage, uh, team, you, especially this free agency, I think highlighted it more than more recent years, where you look at, like, offensive tackle, edge, wide receiver, and cornerback, right? Like, those four positions. Because quarterback's an obvious one. We know that. But a lot of people don't think about it from, like, there, it's hard to get a good tackle in free agency. It's hard yeah. to get a good pass rusher, elite, elite edge rusher, I should say, uh, you know, through free agency. You, you might luck box into Hassan Reddick, wide receivers especially, uh, and cornerbacks. Like, it's really hard to get those guys at this period, and I think nothing has highlighted it more than this free agency period. And like you said, teams are getting sharper in that regard because those guys weren't available, right? Mm-hmm. They've gotten the extensions. But, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to justify bypassing one of those positions, even if they're not as highly graded as Bijan is in context of the running back class uh, versus the rest of the, the field. So it, it is a great conversation to have. I think in the climate of the NFL is, like I said, definitely a, a, an onion question uh, because it's not just the Eagles taking Bijan. It's should anyone take him uh, and all those things incorporated. But we do have some other questions here too. We've got book up next. Book's got a fun question here. He wants to know what previous quarterback class does this one remind you of? Yeah, this I like this question. This is an interesting one because when you go through the past quarterback classes and try to find a good comparison, I think what you really come away with is a, such a good understanding of someone's going to make a huge mistake and get everybody fired. <laughs> because oh, yeah. it's impossible to answer this question without sounding like you're insulting one of these prospects who – Obviously, like there's things I like about all of these guys. I obviously I like Stroud and Young a lot. They're totally worthy of where they're being discussed. And Levis and Richardson, uh, there are obvious flaws. I would have a problem with a team taking them in the top ten if they do. But even with that, like there's a lot of things I like about them, and can certainly see how if they land in a good situation, they could develop into quality starters. Especially Richardson, obviously, like you build a good offense around him and let him develop, like. There's no reason why he couldn't look like a souped-up version of Jalen Hurts in a couple of years. So it's it's easy to get excited about these guys. But when you go through and compare them to past classes, you realize like there's just zero chance that they all work out. And so I think the way I approached this question to try to come up with a good comparison was basically like let's sort of talk about them more generally. And basically what we have is we've got two guys clearly at the top who are reasonably polished and have set themselves apart. And then we've got some trait-based guys below that. And really the one class I think that fits over the last 15 or so years is probably the Goff once year in 2016, where we had those two guys had really separated themselves. It it certainly wasn't as obvious all along that Wentz was going to be drafted up at the top. If you remember that draft process, it was sort of Wentz sort of like slowly built more momentum. Whereas this year, obviously, we've been talking about Young and Stroud since last year. And honestly, you know, since mid-season you know the previous year um, but you had Goff and Wentz at the top they were the obvious two number one number two guys and then you had sort of in that conversation leading up to the draft Paxton Lynch who did end up going in the first round Christian Hackenberg and Connor Cook those were the guys that were sort of like hanging around the conversation 
very similar to like what we have with Anthony Richardson and Will Levis this year. Obviously, like different different traits, different reasons why all those guys were in that conversation, but guys kind of sort of hovering around. And when you look back at that class, the best quarterback of the bunch by a wide margin ended up being Dak Prescott, who was never at any point in time in the conversation of being in the first round. He was my fifth quarterback that year, which was actually probably, I was actually probably a little optimistic on him relative to most. He was much further down some boards. He was the eighth quarterback off the board in that draft. And at, I mean, at no point in time was he in the conversation and Goff, Wentz, both sort of, sort of disappointing. Wentz, I mean, Goff has carved out a decent career. Wentz obviously had a nice peak for a moment. Lynch, Hackenberg, Cook, epic busts. And so like looking at this year's class, like you just, you got to keep that in mind. Like the best quarterback could be someone like Jaron Hall or Aiden O'Connell who were never going to include in the top conversation, but it's going to be a day four pick that gets, or a day three pick that gets developed. Yeah. Does that include, uh, you know, Hennon Hooker to you? What, what are your feelings on Hooker? How close is he to even those top four guys? He, he's clearly not going to go in the first round, but uh, he's going to be kind of like in a mini tier of his own, right? Like those four will probably go in the first round. Uh, and then he probably will go and there'll probably be a, a wide gap, right? To like QB, the QB six. Yeah. I don't know what to make of Hooker. He's tough because uh-huh. obviously he was brilliant in that offense, but that's not an NFL offense by oh, any not stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I mean, even comparing what he was asked to do to Anthony Richardson, Richardson is head and shoulders above him in terms of having experience in what the NFL is going to ask in terms of being asked to drop, sometimes drop back in the pocket. Like Richardson ran the ball a lot, but it was a lot of him dropping back and then sensing pressure and ducking and taking off running. Like they were still asking him to do some NFL things. He was taking three-step drops and trying to be a pocket passer. Whereas Hooker, like that, he is not, he's not being asked to make decisions in the pocket more than one out of every 10 throws or so. It's a really simplistic offense where he's either just throwing go routes or he's throwing really short stuff, tons of screens and quick slants. Mm-hmm. And he's just not making any decisions. And there's this narrative out there around him that like, oh, he's a little bit older. He, you know, he really took off this past year. He's almost NFL ready. And I call BS yeah. on all of that. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. it, guys who've talked to him that they say he's really intelligent, that he really had a good grasp on both the Virginia Tech and Tennessee offense. I believe them. So maybe you can say like he's going to pick up an NFL offense quickly, that you have some confidence in that. That certainly seems plausible, but I don't think you can really paint him as being NFL ready when he hasn't done it before. Like having seen him do it and trusting his ability to learn it quickly are sort of two different conversations. So I don't think an NFL team is ultimately going to talk like a, a team like the Bucks would sort of be the team that if there were an NFL ready guy there that you could see them reaching for it because they do have some pieces in place, obviously, that maybe maybe they could try to win quickly with a young NFL-ready quarterback. But I don't see how they can talk themselves into Hooker being that guy, even if they were to trade right. back a bit from where they're at, just because I, I don't think he was asked to do enough NFL-like things at Tennessee. But from a talent standpoint and from what people say about him off the field, I could see him developing into that. I just don't think that the NFL-ready narrative is true about him. Let me ask you uh, one more question to piggyback off of these these top four quarterbacks. We were in this position last year, and we had a pretty good idea the NFL is down in this class, uh, last year's class. But 
Do you think that there's any chance that either Richardson or Levis can end up falling lower than kind of where they're mocked and treated at? Both guys are kind of considered universal top 10 guys. Is there is there a scenario when we get to April 27th that those either of those guys end up going a lot lower than expected? Oh, absolutely. If one of them fell out of the first round, I would not be shocked at all. And you just have to look back at last year as an example of this. I mean, all through the whole offseason last year, I kept having Malik Willis at like 18th. I think that's where the Steelers was, 18th, 19th, something like yeah, that. Yeah, 19. That was the highest I ever had Malik Willis. I had him falling out of the first round in a couple mock drafts. And I took so much crap for that. But I was like, look, I mean, it's similar to the conversation we just had. Like, I think there's a lot smarter GMs out there. And I don't think there's a lot of people who fit the mold of someone who's willing to take a huge swing on one of these guys. Now, I did not think Malik Willis was going to fall to 85th overall or wherever it was that he went. But yeah, like when you're dealing with a quarterback like that, who is just flat out bad, like let's just call it what it is. Anthony Richardson was a bad quarterback at Florida. I don't think there's a whole lot of teams out there that you can point to that are in a position to take somebody like that and try to develop them. Like let's look, let's use the Colts as an example. Cause that's been, yeah, that's up the one lot. you always pop popular. See. Yeah. Now I can understand. I can sort, you can sort of look at their coaching staff and see, yeah, maybe, maybe they are sort of building up to that. They've sort of built their staff around that because obviously Shane second was with Jalen hurts. Hurt. Then they hired cam Turner who had as their quarterbacks coach who had worked with cam Newton in Carolina and just spent the past couple of years with Kyler Murray in uh, Arizona. So like, yeah, you, you definitely have more experience on that staff as far as maybe trusting those guys to develop one of those, uh, a quarterback like Anthony Richardson. But at the same time, you've got a, a really rough roster right now. It seems like they're kind of tearing things down and you've got a coaching staff that's never worked together either. Um, Stecken and Jim Bob Cooter spent one year together neither one of them has ever worked with the quarterback. So like, do you really want is when you've got a staff like that, do you really want to bring in someone like Anthony Richardson, who you absolutely know needs to be built from the ground up as a quarterback when you really don't know if you can trust your coaching staff? Like, do you even know if your coaches are going to work well together? Like that there's a, there's just a whole lot of variables out there that a lot of these teams have to consider. So if one of these guys ends up falling out of the first round, I won't be shocked at all. And I would say it's all, I would say it's, a well over 50% chance that at least one of them slides out of the top 10 because there just aren't enough teams in the top 10 that are both, both desperate and have the structure within the coaching staff, the organization to make it work. I, I, so I don't think that either one of, I, I don't think that both of them are going to go in the top 10. I, that's really hard for me to see. And we're seeing that in almost all mock drafts right now, mm -hmm. right? Like that both of them are in the top 10. I'm continuing to only put one of them in the top 10 I have Levis in the top 10 now. Maybe I have it flip-flop. Maybe Richardson is the guy that goes in the top 10 and Levis is the one that falls. That's totally possible. But it's there's just so many variables that you got to account for when you're drafting someone who's clearly not ready. I, I think it's much less likely than most fans think that both of those guys get drafted really high. Yeah, 100%. And uh, if you're taking a guy at QB at pick four, it's hard to sit that guy. Right. Like, especially when you're bad, like if the Colts take a quarterback at four and they kind of meander through the season. Right. And maybe the AFC South keeps them alive because, you know, the, the Titans are clearly coming back to the pack. They're starting to tear some stuff down a little bit. The Jaguars are kind of elevating. But like there's no team in the AFC South like we're immediately looking at and saying like, all right, they're going to win 13 games. Lock that lock that in. 
Um, but it's still hard to say when you're meandering your way through a season, you're not very good. You're not winning a lot of games. You selected a quarterback at four to say like, we're not going to play that guy. Like you're just going to get too much internal pressure, right. To, to play him from the fan base and organization. Like they're going to want to see that guy play. And you're talking about a, a brand new regime also getting into bed with a guy like Anthony Richardson and having to play him. Like that's your entire job, right? We talked about Jalen Carter coming with risk of being uh, he's either going to fire or make your job. Like this is all these guys hands in the basket. Like the entire, if you take Richardson at four, he doesn't work out. You have to play him earlier than expected because of your records. You're getting pressure. Uh, and he doesn't hit like that's everyone. Everyone's out. It, it's scorched earth. You, you, you ruin the whole thing. That's why I think it's, it's wide open for the Colts to completely pass. Just take a really good defensive player. Who's probably there at four. Uh, and not force quarterback as well. Uh, they're kind of a wild card team as well. Probably a nice inflection point for a lot of you mock draft guys, right? Oh, yeah. Because like, <laughs> uh, they can go in a number of directions because of that, because it's going to be everyone's job. And they're probably not going to be that good, to be honest. Like They're, 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 they're probably going to be completely adequate as a team. Like, you know, that's that's another thing that I definitely think needs to be included in the Anthony Richardson conversation is if you draft him, unless he slides and maybe a team with a more established veteran decides to roll dice on him and can comfortably sit him but if any team that has an unsettled quarterback position drafts him you're going to be really bad next year whether you play him or not you're either because you're either playing you know some bad veteran in place of him or you're throwing him to the wolves in which case you're going to be bad these guys all play immediately out of the box unless you get a situation like mahomes or the trey lance situation but Mm -hmm. like we don't have richardson i've never seen richardson projected to any scenario like that yeah it's those (laughs) scenarios don't really exist this year it seems like it's going to be right. tough unless, you know, a team, I, I guess the Raiders are the team that can can safely do that, right? That they could sit somebody. So m- maybe that's... But again, are they going to be good enough to, at some point in week nine Yeah, for a team to be like, you have to play him? Yeah, eventually <laughs> you're gonna, you would have to play him because you're going to be bad. So, but, so here's the, the real reason why I think you really, even more so than usual, you have to include this as part of the conversation, is next year's quarterback class... At, I don't know if they're both going to pan out, but at least one of them, I'm sure, will. Caleb Williams from USC and Drake May from North Carolina have the potential to be truly elite. Both of them have the potential to be the types of players that you absolutely have to take first overall and you trade whatever you need to to get up there. And so if you draft Anthony Richardson, you are basically guaranteeing yourself a spot in the top five, at least the top 10 next year. And you're going to be in position to either draft them or make a move to get them. And that, then what? Like You're putting yourself in a really awkward position. Like It's like you're tanking, but for what? <laughs> it becomes a really awkward situation. So if, if you're in yep. one of those teams that you know you're going to be in the top 10 next year with or without Richardson, why not just add somebody else, get into the top 10 next year, and see what happens. Maybe you can get a much, much, much better quarterback prospect. Cause I think Williams is going to be the most hyped quarterback prospect since Andrew Luck and Drake may, you know, he, he needs a little bit more development, but certainly has the traits to potentially be pretty close to that level also. Yeah. I mean, it's easy for me to say, it's not, it's not my money or job in the line. I, mean, I always, <laughs> as much as we've talked about, like I would always just swing on the quarterback and if he's not bad, if he's bad, whatever, you just go back and do it again, but I'm not the one losing my job over it. So exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's, someone's losing the job over it. That's, and not this only is that, us, but, but potentially destroying your reputation. Like look at Josh yeah, McDaniels exactly. and the Tim Tebow pick. Like he took a really big swing and it was hideous. And, you know, I mean, he landed on his feet obviously because he had some good connections in the league, but 
it took a while before anyone was even willing to come sniffing around for a head coaching job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as I said, it's really easy and it's different and it's a different avenue for us trying to do like to predict mock drafts and kind of go through the mental process of what these teams may or may not do. Uh, but you had that was one of the questions from multiple people of uh, you not having the Colts taking a quarterback. So we kind of walked through that. Let's bring this thing home with one of one question that was also kind of universally uh, responded to. And you had the Jets uh, taking a wide receiver. You had them taking Jackson Smith and Jigba, the first wide receiver off the board, uh, and got a lot of pushback on that because obviously they just signed Alan Lazard. They drafted Garrett Wilson uh, with pick 10 last year. Uh, remains to be determined if Elijah Moore is part of their plans. Uh, kind of walk through some of that scenario of how you landed on Jackson Smith and Jigba, and we can kind of talk about uh, the wide receiver. So I have some thoughts on this one too. Yeah, so this is a great example of why walking through different scenarios for mock drafts is so helpful because basically what I ran into when putting this mock draft together was the top three offensive tackles are off the board. And if either one of them were there, I think that's a really easy choice for the Jets is to plug in one of the top tier tackles. But if they're gone, what do you do? Do the Are the Jets in a position to be reaching for a position of need? I would say very strongly no, that they're not in position to do that because even if Aaron Rodgers eventually shows up, like, do you really want to throw him out there with like a big weak link potentially with a rookie offensive lineman that you've reached for? I, I don't know that you'd really want to do that. You're probably better off, even if you're going to have a weak link on the offensive line, you'd probably rather it be someone with experience that you at least have sort of like a baseline level of trust with. I think that the much, especially if Aaron Rodgers is your quarterback, then the much smarter plan would be to let's build a great area of strength. You know, if we can't plug the hole, let's make one area of our team dominant. And so if you added someone like Jackson Smith and Jigbo with that pick, suddenly you have a fantastic receiving core because you've already got Garrett Wilson, who's a clear number one. You've got a good number two in Corey Davis, and you have depth with Lazard and Elijah Moore. If you add Jackson Smith and Jigbo to that mix, suddenly you've got the depth to withstand an injury. You've got a bunch of different types of receivers. Like that could be such an elite group with Rodgers getting them the ball. And then looking further down the line, Corey Davis is in the last year of his contract. Maybe, especially if he has a good year with Aaron Rodgers, maybe he's not uh, someone that you want to pay at the end of the year. Jackson Smith and Jigwood would make that really easy. And then just one one last piece of the thought process here. I know some people were specifically saying, like, you know, why they just signed Alan Lazard. Why would they go and add another <laughs> receiver? Guys, you don't make any decisions based on Alan Lazard being on your roster. <laughs> this is what drives me absolutely the most crazy yeah. about fans responding to mock drafts. It's like, we just signed absolutely mediocre player X. We don't need Jackson Smith and Jigba. I mean, come on. <laughs> Jackson Smith and Jigba <laughs> will be better than Alan Lazard from the minute he gets into the Jets facility. You, no GM is making decisions based on Alan Lazard. Alan Lazard's presence affects your third or fourth round pick. You might pass on a receiver in the third or fourth round because you have Alan Lazard and you don't need like an immediate influx of talent at the moment right there. But with your first round pick, th those types of players, even even Elijah Moore, who obviously, you know, he's young, he could still certainly develop based on what we've seen from him. You're not going to let someone like that affect your decisions in the first round. Like th those just aren't the types of players yeah. that factor in. You're, you're getting the best talent you possibly can at a position that, is at least a relative need and for a position like receivers or cornerbacks where you need a bunch of guys they're kind of always a need no matter what your depth chart looks like yeah 100 i talked about from opportunity cost standpoint uh you know hitting on a wide receiver contract or rookie wide receiver contract is just so massive 
Uh, you know, it's been a huge part of the Bengals outside of Burrow, right? Like they, they hit on two guys. So they had two awesome rookie wide receiver contracts. Uh, also, when you look at the Jets from a top-down perspective, like we don't know if Elijah Moore is really a part of their plans now, if he ends up being part of the potential Aaron Rodgers trade. Uh, remember last year at this time, the Jets were trying to add Tyree Kill. Like it was, you know, they, they were in the mix with them and the Dolphins. Like they clearly maybe not or are as high in Elijah Moore as maybe the fantasy community was uh, and, you know, as a prospect. I still am relatively, you know, progressive and pro Elijah Moore, but I, we don't know how much the Jets are is what I'm saying. Yep. Also, you know, you brought up Corey Davis. Not only is the final year of his contract, I mean, he who knows if he even plays for the Jets this year. I mean, he's he's no dead money. Six, 670K dead money right now coming off the Lazard signing. Who knows if he ends up even playing because he really only played in two wide receiver sets for the Jets last year because of his run blocking. Go guess who's a pretty good run blocker at wide receiver, uh, you know, Alan Lazard. And I also look at it too from you can never have enough good wide receivers in today's NFL because look at all these teams that lost in the playoffs that are good teams, right? What what was the conversation around all of them when they got bounced? When the Bills lost in the playoffs, I was like, man, they didn't have enough playmakers, right? The Cowboys didn't have playmakers. And the Cowboys are a great example because three years ago, they took CeeDee Lamb in the first round and everyone was like, they didn't need CeeDee Lamb. The NFL is just too fluid, right? And like CeeDee Lamb ends up being two years removed from that draft class and is by by far the only reliable pass catcher on the Cowboys, right? Uh, they they had when they took CeeDee Lamb, both Gallup and Amari Cooper had just had 1,100 yards the year before. Randall Cobb had, had over 800 yards the year before, uh, and just two years later, he was the only guy. Now they needed more wide receivers, right? Yep. So yeah, I, I love walking through that process, especially with the tackles gone. Uh, it may look like a luxury pick, but it's a different kind of luxury pick than we were talking about with Bijan Robinson, right? Because the opportunity cost of hitting on a rookie wide receiver contract just gives you so much more leverage than a running back. And if Jackson Smith and Jigba is that good and Garrett Wilson, we already know is that good. uh, And they're both on rookie contracts and you're going to have to potentially assuming Aaron Rodgers is a jet paying Aaron Rodgers a lot of money. You've got a lot of contractual leverage, you know, tied into good players. Um, and, and I love that. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of happens. The Jets are another one of those teams that have to be a real inflection point of the draft for a lot of people. For sure. Yeah, I love that. So, that, listen, that, that walks through a lot of the questions we had. Uh, we are Now Ryan is on Mock Draft 4.0. He's going to be putting these out every week. Let everyone kind of know your, your kind of cadence of putting these out on the website, where they can find them, um, and hopefully we can do some more of these in the future where we get people reaching out to Twitter, trying to tear down your process. <laughs> yeah, for the most part, we do these every week, uh, sort of following uh story like when storylines change and whatnot so obviously we did one pre-combine post-combine post the first wave of free agency i think we'll probably skip this upcoming week because now that free agency has died down we're sort of in a, a, a small lull here and then we'll probably pick up every week after that throughout april obviously as we get closer closer to the actual draft is when we start to really start to hear some things. We start to learn a little bit more now that teams have been, obviously right now they're in the process of actually doing interviews with players, getting to know players better. So we start to get a much better feel for what some of the opinions are once April rolls around. So that's when we start to start to push these like different scenarios that we're throwing out there aside and start to really zero in on some more concrete stuff that's happening. So uh, probably skipping next week, but then 5.0 will be the week after. And yeah, it, Follow me on Twitter at Ryan underscore McChrystal before the next draft podcast. I'll be sure to tweet something out asking for mailbag questions because this is good. Sometimes you guys come up with stuff that I wouldn't have necessarily thought to phrase questions in that way. So it's a good way to get some different ideas out there. 
Yeah, and it gets to walk through kind of your process of how you're landing on some of these picks. Uh, I love it. Uh, very informative show, at least for me. Hopefully everyone else got a lot out of it as well. Again, that's Ryan McChrystal. I'm Rich Rebar, at Lord Reeves on Twitter. You can find all our work at sharpfootballanalysis.com. Until we're back again for the mock draft 6.0, maybe. Uh, we'll see you guys then.